Well, good morning, New Heights, Bentonville. How are you guys? It's great to be here. It's been a, been a while since I've been up here to teach. It's so fun. Back in the early days when the church was just getting started and you guys were over in the old middle school, I used to come up like once a month, I feel like, to lead worship and and it was a lot of fun. So it's great to watch the church grow. And I'm excited to be here this morning. My wife and kids were here the first service. They headed back down to Fayetteville. But like Sean said, I'm one of the pastors on staff at New Heights in Fayetteville. I was the college pastor for seven years, which is a lot of fun. Because there are a lot of college students down there in Fayetteville. So lots of energy and a lot of sleepless nights or long nights, I suppose. You know, it was just fun. Um, but now I'm the full-time equip and discipleship pastor down there. Which we're still, it's a new position. We're still trying to figure it out, what exactly I do. I still run our internships with our college students, but I also help basically with equipping and discipling the entire body. That all of us, like it says in Ephesians 4, can be equipped for the works of the ministry. That's one of our callings as the church. And a part of that is teaching, a part of that is changing our narratives, our stories, so that they line up with Jesus' story. And so that's. That's my job. I love it. Josh asked me to teach this morning on what he said, can you teach on a theology of worship? And I thought, well, that's a really interesting topic. Uh, I love to talk about worship. I love to worship. But teaching on it, I'll be honest with you guys, is a bit daunting. It's a huge topic. And, and you can say so much about it. You can come at it from like 20 different directions. You can talk about singing in worship. You can talk about living a lifestyle of worship. You can talk about serving. And, and the Bible even uses a number of words in the Greek and Hebrew for our one English word, worship. So I've got to pick and say, what are we going to do? I'm probably not going to satisfy all you theologians out there. You're like, he left this out or he left that out. In 30 or 40 minutes, I just can't cover it all. So, so what I was, I was praying, I was thinking that we need to do, my goal really for us, number one, is to help us to think correctly about what worship is. And to, and to really have our thinking line up with what Scripture teaches, because right thinking leads to right practice. Right thinking leads to right living. And so we're going we're gonna to do that, hopefully, today. My number two goal is to give us some practical insights in how to engage with God in worship, here I'm talking about the way that you emotionally, experientially encounter God. And I know even when I say those words, emotionally and experientially, some of you guys are going, well, I'm not so sure about that. Because you like kind of more of a cerebral faith. You know, your faith is very logical. And some of you, maybe your narrative or your story that you hear in your mind is, I'm not sure if emotion's a good thing. Right? I mean, too much emotion can get out of hand, and then the flesh, and then whatever. And, and so, here's what we need to understand. Is that Scripture actually says that emotion and experience are okay. Really teaches that. And so, so we've got to line up our narratives with what, what the Bible teaches. You see all through Scripture, men, women, and even angels will get so filled up with the knowledge of God and who He is that they will just overflow with exuberant, expressive worship. So can I just say this morning, that's okay. It's okay. You have permission to encounter God, to experience him, and to have some emotion as you thank him and you praise him. And uh, he says to us, love me with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And so all of your being can engage with me. So that's okay. And let me also say this just to kind of as an introduction is I do love teaching on this subject uh, because I've had the privilege of experiencing God in worship all over the world. I was raised in the Episcopalian faith tradition, 
And so we had stained glass windows, we had candles, we had robes, you know, uh, sometimes there was incense. So that was just really interesting growing up in, in that expression of church. But I became a serious Christ follower at the age of almost 19. And, and when I came to really give my heart and soul to Jesus and follow him, I started going to a Southern Baptist church with my roommate. And so that was really fun. Uh, I was just really loving hearing all the hymns and incredible Bible teaching. Just really loved learning the hymns of the faith. And then on Sunday nights, though, as a new believer, I was going to this basically African-American full gospel Pentecostal church. And I was one of three white guys in the entire church. I was, I was Brother Kevin. And I'm telling you what, in that church, we got down. I mean, we ate really well, and then we got down in worship. I mean, it was loud, it was expressive, people were lifting hands, sometimes they were shouting, sometimes they were even dancing. Our pastor, his name was Brother Keys, Brother Harold Keys. He, I just, sometimes I'd be worshiping, and I'd look behind me, and Brother Keys is just back there dancing in the back row, just enjoying Jesus. And I was like, this is church. And it was fun, because what I got as a new believer was a spectrum of experiences. And, and that was really fun. But, but then God gave me a real blessing, is that I joined a missions organization, and I worked with this missions organization, got to travel to over 40 different countries. So having the privilege to worship with Chinese believers, incredible. Going, going into Russia and worship, worshiping with Russian believers and Indian believers and Salvadorian believers and believers of all, all stripes and flavors and colors. It's just amazing. And, and I've had the opportunity to go to big missions conferences and worship with 20,000 college students and young adults. I mean, you want to talk about <laughs> expressive worship. I felt like just a, a taste of heaven and what heaven's going to be like. So I, I love to teach on this subject, and I, I've experienced a lot of styles. But more important than style, I've experienced authentic worship. What I mean by that is when we worship, it says that God inhabits the praises of his people. His presence will actually come and manifest in a place. And I've been in worship times with, with communities of believers where the Spirit of God, his presence was so thick in the atmosphere, you can almost cut it with a knife. And, and I've thought about it over the years. What, what makes that happen? What is it? Is that just a sovereign thing where God just goes, here you go, you know? Or, or that God's people, is the attitude of our hearts matter? when it comes to what we experience in worship. And what I found is if you aggregate it all down, or if you sift it and sort it all down, there are some common denominators, or some common elements or understandings that I think that those worship, worshiping communities had that impacted our experience of worship together corporately that make it meaningful and powerful and authentic. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So what we've got to do as we start to get our thinking clear on what worship is, is we've got to go big picture. And to go big picture, what we need to talk about is the purpose for the church. The purpose for a local church. So if I were to do this right now, it would be actually a fun exercise. If I handed out note cards and I had all of you write down, what do you think the purpose is for New Heights Bentonville? And then turn all those in and we kind of, you know, added it all up. It'd be really an interesting study to go, what does everybody think about what this church is here for? And here's the thing, the thing though, is that those answers would be fun, and it would be insightful, but we've got to understand that our local church culture has to be biblical. 
Meaning it can't just be cool or hip or what's trendy in evangelical churches in northwest Arkansas. It's got to line up with Scripture and what Scripture says are the main purposes for a local church. So what I want to do is I want to put up on the screen three purposes that we see clearly in Scripture of what the New Testament church is for. It's really three directions. And those directions are upward, inward, and outward. Upward, inward, and outward. That kind of describes the purpose of the church. And I'm going to put the other three bullet points up there. Number one, which would be the direction upward, would be ministry to God. Our ministry to God. That's our worship. It's a primary calling in the church. Number two is ministry to believers. And and a lot of churches are doing a good job on that. I, I, I really love this about New Heights, that we place a priority on discipleship and community. And that's, that's a second primary calling of the church. Third primary calling of the church is ministry to the world. This is mercy and it's missions. This is our outward focus as a church. And a good, healthy New Testament church will have all three of these things. All healthy. They won't just elevate one and go, we're only about this. We're an outreach church or we're only about that. We're a community church. A good New Testament, healthy, biblical church will have all three expressions going strong. So I'd love to teach on all three of these this morning, but that's not my assignment. Josh asked me to talk about the first one, which is our primary calling. It's ministry to God, our worship. The Westminster Confession of 1646, I think, really nailed it when it comes to the importance of worship. When, it said, when they said this, man's chief end or his purpose for existence, the reason we're here is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And John Piper has a little bit of twist on that. He says, glorify God by enjoying him forever. Um, But here's the deal. Worship is a big thing. It's huge. Worship actually is happening all over the place. We're created for worship, and whether you're a Christ follower or not, everybody's doing it. Everybody this morning on planet Earth is doing worship in some form or fashion. Here's the thing. They just might not be worshiping God. They might be worshiping their sports team or their ski boat or their boyfriend. Everybody's worshiping something because we're wired, we're created to worship. And the Bible is clear, though, that as a church, our primary purpose and calling is to minister to God in the same way that people, the community of believers in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the priests, they existed and they functioned to worship God. They were continually offering sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of thanksgiving. David actually had hundreds of people that were employed at the temple just to lead singing. It was just a natural thing. The flame on the altar was never to go out. That's the Old Testament picture of the community of faith. The New Testament has a lot to say to us about this primary calling as the church. And so what I want to do is I'm just going to look at a few verses this morning. Let's start off with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. It says, In order that we, who's the we? The we is us, the church. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Meaning, what? be all about that. That's our drive, our calling, our purpose is that we're going to live for the praise of his glory. And then Paul directs the Colossian church in Colossians 3.16 to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So I know it's a wild thought to think about that the God of the universe receives our worship. 
Your worship actually, it affects him. I know it sounds wild. He's unchangeable in all his ways and all his attributes. You also have to understand God is a personality. He thinks, he wills, he feels. And so he receives your worship. It's amazing how he set up his universe that way. So we're to minister to God. He's created us to be that type of community. As we talk about a worshiping community, let's look at what Peter writes. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. There again, there's that allusion back to the Old Testament priesthood that continually offered these sacrifices. It says, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. For what purpose? To what end? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So worship, you guys, as we see this calling in the New Testament, worship is not just some cute, fun thing we do to warm us up for the sermon. We got to make that clear. So many people are like, well, you know, we all come in here. It's been a crazy work week. We got to do a few songs just to kind of mellow us out and get us focused on God so that we can get some really good teaching. And if we're honest, some of us have had that view. It's like, well, we'll sing a few songs and then bring on the message. Come on, give me the meat, all right? But is that, is that biblical? Is that scriptural? Because what we see taught in the New Testament is that Worship in and of itself is a major purpose of the church, to minister to God. Because Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. I don't know if I have a slide for this or not. But he gives us an exhortation. He says, making the most of the time we have. And he follows that up with a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then to sing and make melody to the Lord with all your heart. So what Paul is basically saying here is that worship is not a waste of time or some filler. He's actually saying worship is making the most of your time. It's making the most of your time. So, let's just get real personal here. If during the singing and the worship time on a Sunday morning, if you're just kind of flipping through your phone, or if you're just kind of sitting there silently wishing that you get through at the singing so you could bring on the message, or right after the message you're zipping out the door during the worship response time and communion time, then maybe, just maybe, you need to have a fresh perspective on the priority and the calling that we have as individuals in the church, to worship. And so this morning, a part of that fresh perspective, I think for us, might be getting a clearer understanding of what worship is, and probably more importantly, understanding the why behind worship. Because when it comes to the what, when it comes to actually worship itself, I think most of us in this room understand that it's a command, right? That the Bible teaches that you're commanded to worship, to give worship to God, whether you're feeling it, whether you're not feeling it, that you're to, that you're to worship God. Sometimes it, this is a reality. You just have to do it. Are, are you with me? Whether your emotions are feeling it or not, or you're having this big overflowing response, you need to choose to worship God because of who he is. The Bible teaches us that. And sometimes, I know for me, when I follow that command, and I'll start to sing, and I'll start to declare the truth of who he is, my heart and my emotions will follow. Anybody experienced that before? It'll follow. So, so that's good, and, and we have to understand it's a command. But here's what I'd love to do this morning, is I want to give you a little bit of understanding on the why behind worship. Because for me, I don't know about you, knowing the why is motivational. So I want to I give you a little bit of the why. Webster's Dictionary 
tells us, it defines worship. It says it's an overflow of our passion. It's an overflow. So one way to look at worship is we have to understand that worship is a response to something. We respond to something. And so what I've seen is in the church, worship, we can respond to God because of a variety of things. But again, like I said, when you sort it all down, I've seen in worship communities that most people will respond to three major things. And those three major things are beauty, truth, and value. And I want to talk about each this morning. Beauty, truth, and value. The first one, beauty, I think is really easy for us to understand. Has your jaw just ever dropped and you just go, wow, 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 when you see something? Have you ever had that experience? All, all the men in the room should be saying, yeah, honey, when I first saw you, that was my response. I was just like, wow, right? Right, guys? Yeah, somebody, some of you ladies are elbowing your husband. Right, right, that's how it was, okay. So we understand that. We're wired to respond to beauty, whether it's a work of incredible art or it's, a, it's just an amazing guitar solo or, or what it is, uh, or whether you're standing on the edge you know, of the Grand Canyon looking out or you're in Yosemite and, and you just go, awesome. That's just awesome. What you're having is a worship response to beauty. And God's wired us that way. Now, what I want to do this morning is I also want to get real personal with, with us and challenge us because, because if you just hear this message this morning, you can walk out of here and go, I agree, that makes sense, and, and have your heart completely unaffected. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, how is your diet of beauty these days? Is that a weird question? How's your diet of beauty? And I think it's okay to have your soul inspired. I think it's all right to direct your thoughts and direct your eyes to go for a walk in the woods, so to speak, or maybe literally, and, and to think about the most beautiful person in the entire universe, the most interesting personality in the universe, the God of the Bible, to meditate on him and on who he is and the beauty of who he is. And there's a, a great modern hymn or worship song that I think gets this concept right. You've probably sung it here or in, in other churches. It's by Phil Wickham. It's the song, You're Beautiful. I just want to put the words to this little hymn up on the screen and read it. I think he really nails it. He says, I see your face in every sunrise. The colors of the morning are inside your eyes. The world awakens in the light of the day. I look up to the sky and say, you're beautiful. And I see your power in the moonlit night where planets are in motion and galaxies are bright. We're amazed in the light of the stars. It's all proclaiming who you are. You're beautiful. I see you there hanging on a tree. You bled and then you died and then you rose again for me. And now you're sitting on your heavenly throne and soon we will be coming home. You're beautiful. And when we arrive at eternity's shore where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing, you're beautiful. So I want to encourage and challenge you, get filled up with a view of our good and beautiful God. And we all can do that in a variety of ways. I could list out here 10 ways for you to get filled up with, the, with a view of the beauty of God. Um, for me, one of the things that's just a fast connect is just to go for a, literally to walk in the woods. 
uh, to find a place where I can just get immersed in nature. I love to fish. I was out just the other day just for a little bit fishing, and the sun was setting, and the fish weren't biting, but I was just going, oh God, you're beautiful. This is wonderful. And my thoughts were directed to him. It might be that for you, or it might be pondering the words of a great hymn, an old one or a new one, or, or maybe sitting for five minutes throughout your week and just get quiet and let your mind just flip to the faithfulness and goodness of God in your life in past years. Just to reflect on how good and faithful he's been to you. Those are just some, some ways we can get filled up with the beauty of God. All right, this leads to the second uh, response that we have, worship response. And it's closely linked to beauty. These two really are, go hand in hand. They're like two sides of a coin. We are created to respond to truth. And we see this really clearly. Paul told us in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 16, he said, Let the message or the word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I want you to notice a couple of things here in this verse. First of all, being filled with the word, being filled with the message of Christ and singing are linked in this verse. Paul understood this. We are going to, if we let the word of Christ dwell, dwell richly within us, we will sing. We will respond. Also notice the word let at the beginning of the verse. It says, let the message, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What, it, what does that mean? Why is that word let there? It means that you and I have a choice. We have a choice every single day what we are going to be filled up with. It's like I've got a choice to go in the morning and fill up my coffee mug, you know, with that coffee. I mean, I just, that's like a habit, right? Like a practice. I don't, I don't leave home without it. But just as intentional as I am with filling up my coffee mug in the morning, am I intentional about getting filled up with the view of God? Or do I just roll out of my house, roll into my day, and just kind of go on? And then I wonder why my thoughts are on everything but God throughout my day. Because here's the thing. We cannot be passive about filling ourselves up with the truth of who God is. We have a very active role. But for most of us, probably, if we're honest, throughout the week, our thoughts are on everything but God. God's lucky if he gets five or ten minutes of our thoughts in a day. Maybe in a week for some of us. Right? If we're real honest about that. But here's the thing we have to understand. If that's the case, your worship of God will be affected. You just have to understand, your worship is going to be affected based on your thoughts and what you're filling yourself up with. Because worship rises and falls on how we're viewing God. Is that true? Have you experienced that? That your worship rises and falls on how you're viewing God? One of my favorite theologians from the 20th century, A.W. Tozer, said it this way. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about, worship, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's a bold statement, isn't it? What comes into your mind when, I, when you think about God? If I were to ask you, what do you think about when I say God? What comes into your mind is the most important thing about you. Now, why is that true? Because to the extent that God is exalted in the minds of people, everything else goes right. Everything else just seems to follow. You can actually verify this experimentally in your own life. Think about seasons in your life where you had high thoughts of God and you were continually thinking about him. And think about how that affected your actions and your choices. 
And then think about seasons where you weren't thinking about God much at all. How did that go? Because here's the thing. If God is your treasure and he's my treasure, so I see the beauty of his character, I understand the truth of his nature, then where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said that. So what are you treasuring? Where is your treasure? If, if he's your treasure, affection will naturally overflow. Let's see this in Psalms 119, verse 171, this idea of overflow. The psalmist writes and he says, May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. What the psalmist is saying here basically is that as I get to know you, I experience overflow. My lips are just going to overflow with praise. One of, one of the great uh, Christian minds and thinkers of the 20th century just passed away a few years ago uh, was Dallas Willard. And I, I love what he says here about this. He writes, In this way we enter a life of worship, to think of God as he is. One cannot but lapse into worship. So again, what's the application here? Well, how are your thoughts when it comes to God? Are you being filled up with his truth? Are you being filled up with the beauty of who he is, his stories, his narratives? Are you being filled up with those things? And the more that you take in of those things, what you'll see is you'll see a natural overflow and response. Yes, we're commanded to worship. You just need to do it. But I'll tell you what, you can enjoy it if you're getting filled up with truth and beauty and you can experience that overflow. Is that making sense? Does that make sense? Can I get an amen? Okay, awesome. Thank you. All right. Um, I know this. In my own life, if I'm taking in those things, truth and beauty, uh, in my daily time with God, meditating on his word and his goodness, or in community. This also happens in community. Sometimes we think he's talking about my quiet time. I am, but I'm also talking about what does your spiritual community look like? During the week, are you talking with your brothers and sisters about what God is doing in your lives and who he is and how you can know him better? Uh, what, that also affects us. That inspires our soul. And sometimes you just need to take some time out and uh, go get in the woods or, or whatever it is that, that fills you up and inspires you that way. And here's what I've seen, is that during the week, if I'm doing that, and I come into a setting like this on a Sunday morning, Sometimes my expression of worship corporately is, is hard to contain. It's just hard to contain. Uh, have you ever seen somebody? It's like as soon as the, like they strum like three chords, there's somebody next to you, and they're just like, you know, they're just like, oh, they're just like not even saying two, two sentences, and they're just like there, right? And you go, how are they doing that? Like, what's up? Well, what's up is their view of God. Their view of God is up. They came to church already filled up. Wouldn't that be fun if everybody just came to church already filled up? I know how it works sometimes. We go, well, I'm going to go to church to get filled up, right? And, and, and is that, that's okay. And I think that good worship songs in, in Sunday mornings can help move our hearts that way. But how fun would it be if everybody's being intentional to get filled up before Sunday? Wouldn't that be fun? Take that on as a little challenge maybe as a church. That'd be really fun. Um, all right. So... Here's, here's, again, another application just for us. I know I kind of keep driving this point, but, but here's the question. What are your thoughts most upon during the week? And do you see a connection between your mental diet of truth and beauty or your lack thereof and your expression of worship? There was a, a book a few decades ago by a guy named J.B. Phillips. He wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. 
And the point of the book wasn't your God is too small to meet your needs. The point of, uh, of the book, rather, his message to the whole Christian world was your God is so small that you can fail to relentlessly worship and adore him. And, and I hear that and I just go, wow, is my God too small? Is my view of God too small? And here's the thing I want to encourage you with this morning. You might be going, yeah, man, my view of God is pretty small right now. Well, I want to encourage you this morning, there's hope. That can change. God wants to change that. He wants to enlarge. He wants to magnify your view of God, my view of God. There also is action on our parts where we have to be active participants in that process. And, and I want to tell a story here at this point just about how truth impacts worship. I think it's an amazing illustration. I heard a story when I was first starting out in ministry, and it was a story of a couple. They were farmers out in Pennsylvania, in the hills of Pennsylvania. They were, they were Swiss farmers, Swiss descent, and they were sitting in a church service just like this, and they heard a message about how God has a heart for all nations. He loves all peoples. And they just felt a tug in their hearts, we need to go. We need to leave all, all our farm and everything, and we need to go to the nations. And so they went to a missions organization, and they said, here we are. Send us. And the missions organization said, sorry, you're too old. And they said, Mark, you only have a high school diploma, so you can't learn a tribal language. And they sent them home. But thank God, Mark and Gloria, that's their names, Mark and Gloria didn't quit. They didn't give up on the call that God had put in their hearts. They went to a different missions organization called New Tribes. And they went through training with New Tribes, and eventually they were sent out from New Tribes to the island nation of Papua New Guinea, where they encountered a tribe, an unreached tribe, a tribe that had, they really had no written language at all and no exposure to the Bible at all or the gospel. So Mark and Gloria moved to Papua New Guinea and started to work with the Moke tribe, the Moke people. And the Moke people were a very superstitious people, very violent, uh, animistic sort of uh, culture. And Mark and Gloria started to learn their language and their customs. And then what they did when they got enough of the language and the customs, they started to story through dramatically through the Old Testament. And what they would do is they would have people in the village dramatize and act out certain Bible scenes. And so they, they went from Adam and Eve, and they went through all the stories in the Old Testament, and then they came to Jesus. And as, as Mark and Gloria started to talk about Jesus, Jesus became the tribe hero. Everybody loved Jesus. This God-man who had miraculous powers and could drive out evil spirits, and he loved children. Jesus was the tribe hero. They loved Jesus. But then they got to the day where they dramatized Jesus going to the cross. And they said how he was perfect in every way. He was like a lamb, but he was slaughtered. He was slain, and he went to the cross because of our rebellion. And when they got to this part in the story, in the drama, all of the village were just sick with grief. Literally, they just were sick with grief, completely distraught. And Mark told them, he said, tomorrow we're going to finish the story. And he said he got up the next morning. The entire tribe was already assembled before the sun ever came up. They were ready to hear how the story ended because they couldn't believe that this Jesus could just die. And so the next morning, they, Mark told them how Jesus didn't stay dead. How on the third day, 
He rose from the dead and he came out of the tomb and he rose and now he is the king of the entire universe and he can forgive all of your rebellion and you can have a new life in him. And when, when Mark said that, the, one of the town elders, the village elders, jumps up and he yells, Etau, which in their language, in the Moke language, means it's truth, it's good truth. And after that elder jumped up, another elder jumped up and yells, Etau. And then the village grandmother jumps up and she goes, Etau. And one by one, they're just jumping up going, it's truth, it's truth, it's good truth. And you guys, what happens next is amazing. You can actually see it on video. There's a video on YouTube. I'll tell you how to find it in just a second. The entire village jumps up and starts to dance. And they're all just shouting, Etau, Etau. And they just start to dance and they start to celebrate as the entire tribe comes to faith in Jesus. And then they go over and they mob rush the missionary, Mark, and they grab him and they throw him up on their shoulders and they start to crowd surf Mark and dance with Mark, shouting, Etau, Etau, Etau. And you guys, it went on for hours as the entire village comes to Jesus. They couldn't help but respond to the truth of who Jesus was. It's wild. Every time I watch the video, I just cry. I just weep. I don't know. I've seen it 10 times. I just weep. So if you guys want to Google it, I don't have a slide for uh, how to spell it, but write this down, E-E-T-O-A-W, E-E-T-O-A-W, E-T-O-W, video, and watch it super powerfully. So we've talked about beauty. We've talked about truth. I need to talk about the last thing this morning that is a, one of those common denominators that we respond to when it comes to worship. The last thing that moves us is value. Value. And this one I've got to explain a little bit. But I I think we understand it. And this is true whether you're a Christ follower or, or whether you're not a Christ follower, is that we see people sacrifice all the time for what they value. Is that true? Do you see people, they value something supremely and they'll sacrifice everything for it? Like there are people who so value their football team, they don't even think twice about dropping $1,000 to go see them at the Super Bowl and get good seats, right? Like 1000 bucks, not a big deal. You know, my kids need braces, but I don't care. I got to get great seats at the, at the big game. And so they're going to go and they're going to sacrifice for what they value. Because for them, value creates almost an obligation to do something. Value moves them to respond. They've got to experience the big game in a dramatic way. And so I hope that we understand that what we value moves us to respond. And this is, we've seen this played out in church history. Particularly, there was a, a community of believers back in the 16th and 17th century. You've probably heard of them. They were called the Moravians. And the Moravians lived in this part of Eastern Europe, And they had an amazing community. The more that I study about the Moravians, I'm just so blown away. But they so valued the person of Jesus. They so valued him that they got together one night to to worship and they started to pray. And the prayer meeting went all night. But it didn't stop in the morning. The prayer meeting went on the next day and into the next night and into the next night. And you guys, they prayed 24-7 24-7 for over 100 years. A prayer meeting, 24-7 for over 100 years. And out of that, it also sparked one of the greatest missions movements of, of modern history. They became a sending base for missions. Literally, they were the forerunners of all modern missionaries. 
And this whole concept of how they were valuing Christ, moving them to action, is seen in a story of two of the young men who were in that community. There were two young men, and they were in that 24-7 worship furnace. And as they were just viewing God day in and day out, just exalting him, thinking about him, filled with scripture, at that time they heard about an island in the West Indies where there was a colony of slaves. And this colony of slaves had no church, no Christians. In fact, the slave owner said, no missionary, no preacher will ever set foot on my lands. I'm done with God. don't believe in all that stuff. There's no way anybody's going to come share all that stuff with, with uh, my people on my list. So these two guys heard about that, and they went, that's not right. Somebody needs to do something about that. And so, guys, you know what they did? They sold themselves as slaves to pay for their transportation over to those islands so that they could bring the gospel to those people. And this wasn't just some, you know, we're going over for a year sort of missions trip. This was lifetime. They knew that they would never see their families or friends or community again. And so they got on the, on the ship, and they, the ship, they threw off the ropes, and the ship was starting to pull out of the harbor. And one of the young men puts his arm around the other, and he shouts this out. He says, may the lamb who is slain receive the reward of his sufferings. And they sailed off never to be seen again. They actually reached those islands with the gospel. It's an incredible story. But this cry, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his sufferings, became the rallying cry from Moravian missions. And what are they basically saying in this? Is they're saying this, Jesus is worthy of it all. Whatever action, whatever sacrifice, we're willing to even give our very lives to make him known so that he can receive the reward of his sufferings, those for whom he died. And basically they're saying this, we live for the fulfillment of his heart and his purposes. We're all about his fulfillment and his heart. And this is because they were just filled up with who he was day in and day out, and they understood his value. And there's a song that I've been singing recently. It's out of IHOP in Kansas City that I think really grabs this idea of worship based on value, and it's this. The words go, All the saints and the angels, they bow before your throne, and all the elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God and sing, You are worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all, for from you are all things, and to you are all things, you deserve the glory. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. And really, these are words right out of the book of Revelation. Because the angels and the saints in heaven understand his value. They understand that God is the most valuable person in the universe. And he is worthy of worship. And that's why it says in Revelation 5, 12 and 13, they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Is he worthy of our worship? He is worthy of our worship. He's worth it. But here's the question again. We just have to get practical as we, as we start to move towards our close. We've got to ask ourselves, do I see his worth and do I give him the worship he's worthy of? Do I personally, do I see his worth and do I give him the worship he's worthy of? And here's the thing. For probably a, a, a good chunk of us in the room, we might go, no, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that I do. Well, what can we do about it? First of all, I think that what we need to do is we need to assess whether we're having a values war going on inside of us. What I mean is this. Is your value of Jesus diminished simply because you're valuing other things above him? 
Because we're all worshiping something. For some of us, it might be our phone. It might be technology. And I'm going, you know what? I would rather give my time to being on my phone than I would to be thinking about God and be getting in his word. And for some of us, that is the major distraction that numbs our heart. And so we've got to go, okay, am I all right with that? Or can that change? Is that actually something I need to repent of? We've got to wrestle with that, with the things that we value. As Christ followers, Jesus actually challenged us in this. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said something really hard. I want to, I want to just go there for a second. He said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father or mother or wife and children or brothers or sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And you read that and you go, what is Jesus saying there? Is he saying we should hate people? No, of course. The word hate is not literal there. Jesus never promotes a culture of hate. Actually, in the, in the original Hebrew G- Jewish culture, the word hate was used sometimes to express lesser loves. He's talking about the things we love. And basically what this is saying is Jesus saying your love for me needs to be greater than your love, even a love you have for your mom, your dad, and your kids. And I know for, for so many of us, we are, I love my mom, I love my dad, I love my kids passionately. And Jesus is saying, that's wonderful, but your love for me needs to be greater than that. So what do we do? How do we, how do we change this in us? Well, I love down in Fayetteville, Jim Hall is always talking about the time about, all the time about prayer. He's like, prayer changes things, right? You know, prayer changes the one who prays. You ever heard Jim say that? Has Jim Hall ever been here and said that before? Okay, Jim likes to say that prayer changes things and it, prays, it changes the one who prays. We can pray and say, God, help the things in my life to have a proper place and help me to keep you as my first love. And I also think we can pray a specific prayer called the prayer of Moses. It's in Exodus where Moses is on the mountain And he's having this incredible experience with God. And then Moses prays this bold prayer and he goes, show me your glory. And what he's praying for there isn't just God, show me your miracles and show me all your cool stuff. He'd already seen that. He'd seen the sea split. He'd seen a rod turn into a snake. He'd seen glory clouds. He's seen that stuff. What he's really saying here is put your value on display. Show me how valuable you are. Show me who you are. Be magnified. We used to sing that a lot in worship songs. Be magnified. And, and I know for me, if I have a steady diet throughout the week of truth and beauty in Scripture, I'm just meditating on Scripture and good worship songs, that can act as a magnifying glass to help me to fix my eyes on Jesus' worth and value. All right. I'm going to wrap up here just with one last final application, and then we're going to move into a time of response. We've already talked about being intentional to get filled up with beauty, truth, and value and how those produce overflow, but there's one other thing. We need to know how being loved impacts our worship. Jesus told a powerful story in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to read the entire story. It's in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to put it up on the screen. You can go on your, on your uh, Bible app if you want or with your Bible. Luke chapter 7, and I'll start in verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with perfume. 
Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And you gave me no kiss. But from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What is Jesus trying to get across to us through this story? Well, I think the application is pretty simple. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? Do you know how the perfect Son of God, in all of His perfection and beauty and glory, took the nails because of your rebellion and my rebellion? Do you know that He did that for you? This woman in this story, she understood her condition. She also understood that Jesus was her only hope. And because of that, her worship response was extravagant because she knew how much she'd been forgiven, and she knew, because of that, she loved much. For some of us, if we have a hard time really just saying thank you, Jesus, for for your salvation, we have to ask ourselves the question, do I really understand how much I've been forgiven? Or maybe it's just time to re-reflect on that. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 19th century, I love, he said, a great sinner pardoned makes a great singer. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon always said cool stuff like that. How did he do that? So true. So this morning, here's how we're going to wrap up. Is I, I have a feeling that probably for most people in this room, you're a believer in Jesus, and you came here and, and you know him. But if you don't this morning, if you, if you don't know how the Son of God took the nails and took the shame and took, took what you deserved so that you could go free and live his kind of life, if you don't know that if you've never opened up your heart and said, Jesus, you're my only hope, Please forgive me, I need you. Come into my life. Then don't leave here this morning without doing that. And just praying. Praying, you can pray by yourself. You can pray with somebody here. I encourage you to do that. And if you do know him this morning, I want to encourage you to thank him for the cross and to be filled with the joy of your salvation and to rejoice in your good and beautiful God. And then one last response, and I'm just going to pray for us. So maybe, maybe if you would, we could just bow our heads right here in this moment. Um, when we're done here, as we're worshiping, there's going to be prayer people around the room. And, and you can go and pray with somebody. I'd encourage you to do that. And to take communion. There's communion tables set up around the room. But right now, let me just pray for us. Let's respond. Jesus, we do believe it. We believe that you're the most valuable, most beautiful person in the universe. That, Father, you're a good and beautiful God. And that you're good and that you really do love us. And You're for us and you're with us. And Lord, I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers. I pray for my sisters, God. If we 
If we're just busy and we're distracted and our view of God is low right now, I just pray that we wouldn't be okay with that and walk out of here and go, well, that's just where I'm at right now. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to mess with us and help us, Lord, to to come, Lord, to choose, just like some of us choose to fill up our coffee cup in the morning. Help us to choose to come and get filled up, even if it's five minutes, to get filled up with a view of who you are, what what you've done for us. Lord, we love you, and and we just ask that you continue to take us on this journey of becoming a worshiping community, as individuals and as a local church, to walk in the calling and the commandment that you've given us to worship. I just pray our hearts would be engaged this morning. Thank you, Father. Thanks for this time. Lead us now. In Jesus' name.